0: But in addition to to being important for textual reasons, uh, what we're really concerned about here is the fact that uh, the the Septuagint is very important for interpretive reasons. You see, you cannot translate a document unless you first understand the document. So almost by definition, you are involved in the process of interpreting what you're reading so that now you can put it in the words of the other language. What that means is that outside of the Old Testament itself, the Septuagint turns out to be the oldest interpretation of the Bible that we have. Now, it's true that uh, for uh, a good deal of the text, if the Septuagint is simply, You know, translating fairly literally a simple story, uh, we don't get a lot of help. I mean, there isn't a great deal in the Septuagint that sheds light on our understanding of the Hebrew text. But there are many, many other passages where it is indeed helpful. For example, there are many words in the Hebrew Bible, many, many words in the Hebrew Bible that appear only once in the whole Bible or twice. Uh, if, if something appears only once in a document, uh, scholars have this term, hapax legomenon, which you may have heard about, you know, appearing once. And when something is found in only one context, it is usually a little bit difficult to figure out what the meaning of the word is. It's only after you see it used in a variety of contexts that you can have a better sense of the meaning of the word. In some cases, the word may be strange, not only to us, but also may have been strange to the translators. And they are guessing as much as we're guessing. In other cases, uh, the word may have been known to them. And so, an ancient version like the Septuagint, but also the Targums or the Vulgate or whatever, may provide information for these rare words. Or it may be a difficult syntactical syntactical construction. Or it may be other details about the Hebrew, uh, which they, the translators, being much closer to the events, would have had uh, a better idea about. Now, like everything else, you have to be very critical about, about these things. You have to evaluate them. You have to say to yourself, when the translator is giving me this translation, is it that he knew something that I don't know? Or that he is confused and he's trying to make sense out of it? And uh, in some cases, we are in much better shape because we have a knowledge of the Semitic languages as a system, as a family of languages, that the translators would not have had. And uh, sometimes we're able to come up with information that uh, goes beyond what they can provide. So you have to play these things uh, in different ways. Now, the Septuagint is still a primary source of information for us. There's another reason why the Septuagint is very, very important. It provides a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek. When the New Testament writers wanted to express something which was connected with the faith of the Old Testament they had a translation ready-made and they would more frequently than not use the Septuagint when referring to the Old Testament. Now this is exceedingly important because it means that the language of the New Testament, vocabulary, sometimes the syntax, certain concepts, certain stylistic questions are much better understood if we realize that connection that it has with the Greek Bible, with the Greek Old Testament. And uh, there will be other uh, occasions um, in our course and certainly in, in your other courses where you will see how, uh, how helpful that is. Uh, now, the question of allegory In the Septuagint itself, there are a few instances where you can tell that the translator is trying to make sense of the Hebrew by allegorizing. That is, by assuming that the meaning of the Hebrew is not a literal meaning, but that there may be something mysterious going on. uh, And so you try to see some kind of figurative idea behind the text. That happens occasionally in the Septuagint. But as a matter of fact, there were other writers for whom the allegorical method was very important. And it was their way of uh, preserving their Jewish faith in a Greek or Roman context. What do I mean by that? allegory or the allegorical method wasn't invented by the Jews this was invented by the Greeks before particularly in connection with the writings of Homer, the Iliad, and the Odyssey. In these writings as you may recall there are all kinds of stories uh, about the gods doing this and the gods doing that coming in and having sexual relations with uh, human women or being in banquets and getting drunk. And um, sometimes the Greeks themselves were offended by these things and um, they were concerned about the effect that those stories might have on the children whatever. And they developed a system of interpretation which involved allegorizing these uh, Greek stories, and assuming that, well, that's not really what's going on. That's, that's just the way in which the writer was trying to communicate something else, you see? So you, you um, distance yourself from the more lit- literal approach and, and give it an allegorical meaning. Now, some Jewish writers found that a very, very convenient method in their whole task of preserving their Jewish culture. Why? Well, there are some things in the in the Hebrew Bible that are a little difficult to explain uh, or that maybe some of the uh, pagans would have laughed at. The allegorical method gave the Jews a way of saying, well, but you're just misunderstanding the, the Hebrew Bible. Something else is going on here. Uh, That's simply intended to convey another meaning. There's the meaning that is under the text, you see, and not what is on the surface. So the allegorical method of interpretation became important for some people, especially in the Hellenistic world, and even more particularly in Alexandria, because in Alexandria was where you had a lot of of the literary uh, studies that uh, that really motivated some of this kind of interpretation, one of the main practitioners of, alleg- of allegory was Philo the philosopher, and I'll talk about him in just one moment. Uh, in fact, let's talk about him right now. We move on to philosophy, and. Um, in addition to writing history in addition to interpreting the Bible there was a big problem for the more intellectual Jews in trying to demonstrate that Hebrew tradition was respectable intellectually respectable the pagans um, would brag about having all this wonderful Greek tradition and especially the, the philosophers you know, Plato and Aristotle and, and Socrates and Thales and all that. And um, what do you do with that? Well, what you do is to try to demonstrate that the Bible uh, teaches a philosophy that that is every bit as respectable and even more so than that of the Greeks. And the way that you go about doing that is to try to show that some of the more important insights of Greek philosophy can already be found in the pages of the Hebrew Bible. Now, you use allegory as one way of demonstrating your thesis. And uh, here's where Philo comes in. He went so far as to argue that some of the better ideas of Socrates and Aristotle and so on had actually come from Moses. Because you see, Moses certainly lived uh, quite, quite a, a long time prior to the flowering of Greek philosophy. And if he could show, by the allegorical method and so on, that the Hebrew Bible already taught certain things that were part of Greek philosophy, then the, uh, the most obvious solution was to say, aha, this is where these things really originated, and the Greeks simply borrowed them from us. The result, of course, was that in Philo's teaching in his writings, you have a merging of Hebrew ideas with Greek philosophy, which uh, more often than not is uh, a little bit um, uh, less than helpful. Now Philo, again, uh, he was also from Alexandria and he also lived in the first century. He wrote a great deal, many, many volumes of his works. Uh, you have some uh, samples of that in the book by Barrett. And you should make a little bit of effort to try to uh, you know, get a sense of what he was like. Won't take you very long to realize that he could be deadly boring. Um, and sometimes very difficult to to make sense of. But he was very influential. Uh, He wasn't the only one, and probably not even the first uh, Hellenistic Jew to try to import Greek ideas and to use the allegorical method. But he was was very good at it. And uh, he influenced not only a lot of uh, of the development of Judaism but also Christianity. As some of you know, by the time you get to the second century of our era and then into the third, you have a number of um, Christians, particularly the Christians who lived in Alexandria, like Clement of Alexandria and origin, who uh, used Philo's ideas and his methods and so on to defend the gospel. And that also created some problems for the Christian faith just as it had created some problems for the Jewish faith. But uh, to give you a couple of examples, um, Philo would um, go back to the uh, story of creation and so on. And then the fall, and uh, he would read this passage about uh, Adam and Eve hiding because they knew they were naked. And Philo asked the question, well, now, wait a minute here. Uh, This story is a little strange because this is about God walking in the garden and then he's calling Adam, Adam, where are you? Something isn't right there because God is omniscient. Uh, He doesn't need to ask, where are you, right? He knows. So for Philo, that is a key that you're not supposed to take the story literally you see and he would probably say to you you're not taking it literally because you believe that god is omniscient therefore when he says where are you uh, adam uh... that cannot be in the most literal sense something else must be going on but you see now philo takes that and he makes it the stepping stone for trying to interpret everything else in the story in a non-literal fashion allegorical fashion so the idea of God calling Adam, what really is happening, you see, this is a figure for the notion of the Logos. Now the term Logos, L-O-G-O-S, you know, uh is a was a very common Greek uh way of representing a number of ideas, and but you know, reason as, as kind of the uh the ultimate that man could hope for. And so it is so more or less personalized. So the logos is looking for uh, man, because man has actually retreated from reason. That's the point. And it's only as he comes out and embraces reason that he's going to to find, uh, you know, truth and happiness and what. So you see this merging of the of Greek philosophical ideas with the Hebrew narrative by means of the allegorical method. And there are many other examples of that. You know. Um, when he gets to the uh, stories of Abraham's migrations and Abraham goes from here and to there and, and then over there and so on. And Philo says, this is totally irrelevant. You know, what good does it do to us to know that Adam was moving from here and there and every other place? Because it is not relevant, God must mean something else, you see. God doesn't waste his time giving irrelevant information. So then you ask the question, all right, if the literal meaning is not important, or even not what really God is trying to get across here, what is the real meaning? And then you get this whole business about the uh, migration of the soul, and then what have you, and then it gets very complicated. Uh, so you see what's going on here. Later on, Origen would argue in very similar fashion. Whenever you get a, and you know we criticize it, But they would have said, you do the same thing, because if if you go to the Bible and you read that the eyes of God are running to and fro, do you believe that God has eyes? And do you believe, additionally, that God's eyes have little feet that are running to and fro? Uh, So that doesn't make sense to you, or it is offensive to you, and so you take it metaphorically. Of course it is not literally. God doesn't have a body, and so it's, a, it's a, a figurative way of speaking. So Origen would have said, so you say you do the same thing that I do, only that I do it a little bit more systematically and take it. In. So anything that offended him or that didn't seem to make sense, you solve the problem by a, a metaphorical or allegorical reading of the, uh, of the stories. And uh, that helped him a great deal when trying to argue with, with philosophers in the second century. Now, uh, something that I I should say very briefly, or comment on, is um, the question whether there is any connection between the uh, ideas of Philo on the one hand and the writings of the New Testament on the other. Because in the past, there are a number of scholars who have tried to make a case for that. In particular, uh, with the Epistle to the Hebrews. The Epistle to the Hebrews is written in a very elegant uh, type of Greek. And uh, some have argued that some of the concepts, concepts, some of the ideas in the epistle to the Hebrews seem parallel to an, to an Alexandrian way of thinking, and that perhaps uh, the writer was influenced by Philo. Um, some of the more recent investigations, and some of which, by the way, are very extensive. There's a big, fat book, about 500 pages, just talking about whether or not uh, there's Philonic influence in the Epistle to the Hebrews, it's amazing, you know. The Epistle to the Hebrews has 13 chapters, and you need 500 pages to talk about this anyway. And at the end, the um, uh, the writer says, "Look, there 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 are certain similarities, but uh, it is just not possible to demonstrate that there's any kind of." of uh, organic connection between the two and that, in fact, the differences are probably even more significant. You know why people would ask the question. Take someone like Melchizedek, remember? In chapter 7, Melchizedek, you know, didn't have father or mother and he lives forever. And uh, that sounds a little bit like something that Philo might have done in trying to prove that Jesus uh, lives forever because in Psalm 110, you have that that statement, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek and then you start making these connections. But even chapter 7 uh, does not deal with the text quite the same way that Philo would have uh, dealt with it. Uh, another uh, passage that is usually discussed in this context is John chapter 1 where John uh, refers to Jesus as the word, the logos. In the beginning was the logos and... The, <coughs> the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, and so on. And because the Logos was so popular among Greek philosophers, and especially in Philo, some people say, well, you know, maybe we have some influence from uh, Alexandrian philosophy in, in John's uh, Gospel. But you see, um, again, the word Logos was so common. It had all kinds of different meanings, it had a um, uh, variety of uses that uh, it's a little risky to try to make some clear connections uh, between one writer and another. You have to ask yourself why would John uh, depend on Philo for something like this? Uh, Would that really help his readers? I mean Philo, influential as he might have been in some circles, was not well let me put it this way his books were not sold in paperback in the grocery store. You know, uh, it was if you wanted to explain something to the common people, you wouldn't go to Philo as your as your source for it. Uh, but beyond that, you have to appreciate that in Philo's thinking, he is too working with a dualistic viewpoint, and for him, the Logos, even when he personalizes the Logos as reason. Um, is something that cannot have direct contact with this world of evil. He's, he's kind of a, uh, the Logos is some sort of um, uh, um, figure that fits in between the two in some way. That is, that world and this world. John, what does he say? <laughs> the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, you see, and inhabited among us. What I'm trying to say is that, if, which I doubt it very seriously, but if John has in mind the, the Philo's logos, uh, what he's really doing is telling people don't believe a word of what Philo is telling you, because the truth is quite different. The truth is that of incarnation, which is. Not only is that not what Philo meant, but it is exactly what Philo could not have meant, and which would have been totally at odds with his own philosophical way of thinking. Uh, I I think that the the simple reason why John used the term logos is that it is it so uh, effectively conveys the notion of Jesus as the revealer, and and he tells you, I mean, he himself tells you why he calls him logos. Because when you get to the very end of the prologue, in verse 18, uh, he says, uh, no no one knew him, and so on, only the one who's at the bosom of the Father, and he made him known. And interestingly, uh, John there uses the Greek verb exegeo, from which we get exegesis. Uh, uh, He's the one who explains the Father. Uh, That's why he is the Word, he reveals. And there's plenty of evidence that already in Judaism there was a tendency to speak of of the Word of God as the one who reveals. and uh, You see in the Targums, the Aramaic translations, when you read uh, Genesis 1, you might have something like in the beginning God, the Word of God, Memra Adonai, Memra, created the world uh, as a way of of, uh, recognizing that the notion of God's Word as as something that is very powerful uh, needs to be taken seriously. Anyway, let me keep going if you don't mind. Uh, I want to um, at least uh, talk about the um, the apocryphal literature in, in general. And uh, we will have time for questions tomorrow when we finish this section. The first thing we need to do is to clarify our terms. And uh, this is a little confusing, unfortunately. <coughs> We are dealing now with a whole bunch of books that were written by Jews uh, during this period, during the intertestamental period. By the way, I don't think I've mentioned this before. Um, Intertestamental is a term that uh, really should be taken in a neutral sense. It's neither positive nor negative. It's just your way of saying that there is a temporal period between the Old Testament and the New Testament and you want to find out what's happening there. some people don't like that term because they say, "Well, when you use the term intertestamental, then you are uh, giving some of the books written during this period a second um, uh, secondary status." and of course we do <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there is some measure of uh, validity to, to their argument, because if, if you if you think of a document simply because it's, it helps you shed light on something else, it is easy to misuse that document. You, you see what I mean? The first thing you need to do is to try to understand anything on its own terms. And once you've learned to appreciate it and understand it and so on and so forth, it's, surely it's perfectly valid to ask, well, now what does this do to help us understand something else, in this case, the New Testament. What frequently happens is that people don't spend the time to do the first stage of the work. All they do is, all right, now how can this help me for this? And then you can get into trouble. And then certainly for Jewish scholars, uh, they don't like the idea of uh, of using these documents as, as secondary stuff. And the term intertestamental, for some reason, is not uh, uh, something they like. And uh, there are other, there's other language that is used uh, you know, to be politically correct and so on. Um, one of them is um, early Judaism. Early Judaism, that's a very handy term uh, and useful. I think it's, it's good because what you're really saying, you're still distinguishing. Uh, the Hebrew, the classical Hebrew period and so on, which is part of the canonical scriptures, from the subsequent period, uh, by calling it early Judaism, you're fo- focusing appropriately on the, on the way in which uh, Judaism began to develop after the, uh, the Old Testament canon came to an end. Uh, historically, from a historical point of view, a very common, uh, it's becoming more and more used, is the term the, the period of the Second Temple, the Second Temple period. And a, a Jewish scholar will very frequently use that term. It is very useful because you're talking about the period from the reconstruction of the Temple, when the Jews returned from Persia, you see, through the time when it was destroyed in AD 70. Uh, and, um, you could talk about the writings of the Second Temple, Second Temple period and, and I think that, that has some value to it. Anyway, um, there are all these writings that were produced. How do we get a handle on them? The term apocryphal uh, comes from the Greek, Greek word apocryphon which means hidden and originally was used of, of uh, books that um, you know, were thought to be not authentic, or there was at least some sort of negative evaluation attached to them. The books known as the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha, are a number of books which sometimes are published separately as i have in this particular volume the oxford annotated apocrypha or will be found in copies of the bible that have the uh, approval of the uh, roman catholic church roman catholic bibles have as part of the old testament a series of books um, you have the wisdom of, of uh, Joshua ben Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, the wisdom of Solomon, the prayer of Manasseh, the book of Tobit, Judith, Maccabees, and so on. So you have a bunch of books which are part of the Old Testament in a, Hebrew, in a uh, Roman Catholic Bible. Now, because the term apocryphal has a negative connotation, the Roman Catholic theologians would not use the term apocryphal to refer to them. They used the term that's next in your list there, deuterocanonical. Deuterocanonical. That is they were canonized at a later term in a second stage. Now let me give you a little bit of the background for that. The Hebrew Bible, that is the the Bible used by the Jews, does not have these books. But the Septuagint has them. So what happened was that in the early church, most Christians used Greek for their language, and they used the Septuagint. And so there was a tendency for these books, which we call apocryphal, Uh, to be used by the early Christians. But there was never a um, a decision, a formal decision made by the church to say that these books are part of the canon. And, And some of them realized that these books were not accepted by the Jews and they were not in the Hebrew Bible. And so some theologians, like Jerome, uh, did not believe that these books ought to be part of the Hebrew, of the Old Testament however people be, continued to use them more or less at the time of the Reformation the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century uh, the Protestants said you cannot accept these books they were not received by the Jewish people and it was the Hebrew people who in a sense were entrusted with the oracles of God as Paul says in Romans 3 and so on And therefore, um, they should not be part of the Bible. And they would also argue, and the church has never officially said that they are part of the Bible, so therefore we're not going to use them. Now, in response to the Protestants, in the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church, in their famous Council of Trent, the Council of Trent, And we'll talk a little bit about that at the very end of the semester, by the way, when dealing with canon. Um, But at that uh, council, they formally accepted these books as part of the canon. And that's why they're called deuterocanonical. Because it's an admission, if you will, that they were not accepted as canonical by the Hebrews, but they were formally recognized as such at a later or at a second point now so far so good there are however a whole bunch of other books out there written by Jews during the same period that are not part of the Hebrew Bible, they're not part of the Roman Catholic Bible, they're not part of anybody's Bible. And um, scholars have been aware of these books for quite a while. Most of these books, not all of them, but most of them, are books written under an assumed name, usually the name of some important figure of the past, like the Testament of Adam or um, the, uh, the visions of this prophet, or this and the other. And uh, because of that feature, the term pseudopigraphic, pseudopigraphic, uh and that's your next term on the outline, pseudopigraphic, began to be used as a description of these books because they were written under a false name or under an assumed name. Now, there are a couple of problems. As I said, uh, many of these books had that characteristic, but others did not have the same characteristic. They were not necessarily written under an assumed name. But because they were Jewish books written around this period, and they didn't belong in any other category, they were just, you know, people kept throwing these books into the same category. So the term pseudepigraphic, that's the adjective, or pseudepigrapha, for the plural noun, became something of a you know, grab bag bag. Uh, every every now and then a new document would be discovered, written by Jews at that period, part of the super And that messes things up a little bit. To muddy the waters even more, a Roman Catholic scholar is very likely to use the term apocryphal to describe what we call the pseudopigrapha, Because of the negative connotation of the term ap- apocryphal. Now the only reason I'm telling you that is if you're reading you know, some book nowadays, nowadays, and it happens to be written by a Roman Catholic scholar, and that scholar uses the term, the apocryphal books. He probably means something else than what we usually mean when we, when we speak about the apocrypha, OK? So that's just something for you to keep in the back of your mind so that uh, you don't get mixed up. Now, scholars don't always help you with this. In the um, bibliography on page 6 of your syllabus, um, <coughs> The very first item, uh, a, a big two volume work edited by James Charlesworth, the Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, that is the standard translation, English translation of these works. And here he's using the term pseudepigrapha in the way in which we would normally use it. They do not include the Apocrypha, which is part of the Roman Catholic Bible. Okay? Now uh, this is kind of expensive because, as I said, they're, they're very, very big books with small print and they have introductions and notes and it's very useful. And there are a whole bunch of them. I forget how many uh, books in all, but uh, there are quite a few of them. There's another work towards the bottom of the, um, of the list here, the one by H.F.D. Sparks, The Apocryphal Old Testament. And unfortunately, Sparks, who ought to know better, is using the term apocryphal, not in the sense in which I have described it for you, but more in the Roman Catholic sense. And, uh, so, but these books are pseudepigraphic books that are included in this one. Now, this is a, a better edition because it's, there are fewer books, but they're more carefully selected. It's one volume you can get in, in paperback and uh it's not a bad idea to have uh that volume and to read it because it's uh it's nicely arranged and it gives you a good sense of of how Jews were thinking about this time, but uh, just don't be misled by the title, even though he calls him apocryphal, he's really talking there about the uh pseudopigraphal, maybe part of the reason why he uses apocryphal is that he is uh uh belongs to the Anglican Church, and uh you know there's some connections be, be well some similarities between the Anglican Church and the Roman Catholic Church in some ways. And uh, in the tradition of the Anglican Church, the apocryphal books have been used, not as canonical, but as valuable works. And I may have more to say in in a little bit about that. Anyway, so much for the terms. Uh, Think about it for a while, and and you can ask me. Yeah? So are deuterocanonical and apocryphal synonymous? No, no. it depends on who's talking, you see. we're <laughs> talking in our way? No, for us, when when I use the term apocryphal, I'm talking about a relatively small number of books which were accepted accepted by the Roman Catholic Church as canonical, uh, or oh, and canonical You said. Yes. I'm sorry. I, I thought I heard you say pseudographic. Yeah, Duro canonical uh, would be the Roman Catholic designation for what we call apocryphal. That's correct. Yeah. Whereas pseudographic is that more or less open-ended uh, group of books uh, that are not received as canonical by anyone. Yeah. Let's hold off on that. Uh, actually, uh, although later in the course I'm going to talk about the New Testament, can the Old Testament. This will uh, come into the picture. And then you will probably get even more information about that in the uh, in the Old Testament production course. Yeah. Uh, is there any theory of the Well, you see, when these books were translated at first, nobody had sat down and said, "This is canonical and this is not." What happens is that you had a series of popular books, uh, and you know. Th- there were translations of all manner of things uh, at that time. It just appears that uh, the Jews who lived in Egypt uh, and see this, this is another problem that you need to appreciate. Back in those days you would not have a big book with all these things. They were separately produced uh, books in scrolls. Uh, but because apparently some groups of Jews in Alexandria uh, valued them highly then at a much later point, when these books were united in, in some of the codices, uh, they, were, they were included. But uh, we don't have very much information. I, I, they were, you don't have um, concrete decisions made about that thing, it just kind of happened. Let me uh, keep moving, and as I said, you, you have opportunity for questions uh, tomorrow. But um, I wanted to give you some idea of the kinds of books included both among the apocrypha and the pseudepigraphic works. And uh, it is sometimes useful to do that by simply uh, talking about different genres, literary genres or literary types. One of the types of books that you find uh, is simply history or or narrative. Now, within the apocrypha, within this uh, well-defined group, you have quite a few of these uh, narratives, some of them fairly historical in character, like 1 uh, Maccabees. Second Maccabees is also, I think you could call that semi-historical. Uh, there is clearly quite a bit of legendary material in that book. Books like Tobit and Judith, uh, and so on. In the uh, among the pseudopigraphic works you also have some books that are primarily narrative in character uh, for example the book of Jubilees which is kind of a retelling of the uh, of the book of Genesis is uh, is narrative in character um, but some of them and, and again the book like Tobit or, or Judith that comes much closer to what we might call a historical novel. Uh, there may be some element of truth. Maybe there was some individual named Tobit, or an individual named Judith. Uh, but uh, it is generally agreed that the that the book as a whole is fictional to a, to a fairly uh, significant degree. You have also uh, some books, both in the Apocrypha and in the pseudepigraphic writings, that have a strong poetic character and um, uh, the songs of Solomon among the pseudepigraphers for, for instance songs of Solomon in the uh, among the apocryphal books a good example I suppose would be the prayer of Manasseh the prayer of Manasseh is kind of interesting you remember that Manasseh was a um, a very evil king at, at, towards the end of the uh, kingdom of Judah but according to the book of Chronicles, uh, Manasseh repented at the very end of his life. And he prayed a prayer of repentance to God. And apparently somebody thought it would be nice if we had that prayer. Uh, so somebody wrote something up and called it the prayer of Manasseh. And uh, it's it's really quite a beautiful prayer. And has been used even by Christians So uh, in many uh, situations. Uh, but already in the prayer of Manasseh, you can begin to sense that um, some of the ideas, some of the ideas among the Jews at the time uh, were not necessarily quite in line with what uh, we would think is, is correct. He begins, O Lord Almighty God of our fathers, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and of their righteous posterity, Thou who has made heaven and earth with all their order, who has shackled the sea by Thy word of command, who has confined the deep, and so on. So you can see a lot of, of praise of God Uh, after the manner of the Psalms. uh, Yet um, thy glorious splendor cannot be borne, and the wrath of thy threat to sinners is irresistible. Yet immeasurable and unsearchable is thy promised mercy, for thou art the Lord most high, of great compassion, long-suffering and very merciful, and repentest over the evils of men. Thou, O Lord, according to thy great goodness, hast promised repentance and forgiveness to those who have sinned against thee. And in the multitude of thy mercies, thou hast appointed repentance for sinners, that they may be saved. You can see how this is very, very much um, uh, a a genuine expression of of repentance for sin. But then, you, you read, Therefore thou, O Lord, God of the righteous, hast not appointed repentance for the righteous. For Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against thee, but thou hast appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. For the sins I have committed are more in number than the sin of the sea, and so on. Already there, you can begin to, uh, more than begin, I mean, it's pretty blatant, uh, a sense of the patriarchs as being in a different category and um, their righteous deeds as... Uh, being of a different character and that would eventually develop into a notion of, of a, uh, almost a, um, an accumulation of merits by the patriarchs. So you can, you can notice that in the apocryphal works um, there are some shifts, some theological shifts if you will that uh, we would have problems with. Then you have the category uh, called wisdom literature. Uh, following after the pattern of uh, the book of Proverbs, or the book of, Ecclesiast- of Ecclesiastes, book of Job, and so on, wisdom uh, literature, which um, again is not unique to the Bible. You you have this kind of writing in Egypt as well, but is intended to instruct people, particularly young people, you see, in uh, in, in the ways of God. And uh, that became a popular type of writing subsequent to the, uh, to the end of the Hebrew canon as well. There are a couple of works in the Apocrypha that belong in this category, the so-called Wisdom of Solomon, the Wisdom of Solomon, which apparently is a book that was actually produced in Alexandria. But another one that is of even greater interest is the wisdom of Joshua Ben Sirach, Joshua Ben Sirach. Uh, This book is often referred to simply as Sirach or uh, Sirah without the C-H. And it is also known as the book of Ecclesiasticus. Uh, Not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus. This was actually the writing of a, obviously, a very pious uh, Jewish teacher, maybe in the 3rd century BC, or soon after that. Uh, A person whose way of thinking, and I think, anticipates uh, some of the uh, teachings of the Pharisees, and I'm I'm not using that in a negative sense right now, but just some of the further developments and um, his grandson translated the Book of Ecclesiasticus, uh, that is the, the wisdom of his grandfather, into Greek and it became a very popular book. It's a long book, about 51 chapters and uh, it is very much in the pattern of the Book of Proverbs even much more so than the so-called Wisdom of Solomon. and there's a lot of useful, helpful, I think quite um, uh, good instruction. Uh, There's a great deal about wisdom. And um, it is interesting for a number of reasons. One of the um, more interesting features that I can think of is the fact that Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 11 apparently alludes to uh, the book of Ecclesiasticus. Now, uh, that is not certain, and not everyone agrees absolutely, but uh, it, it looks fairly clear to me. In in chapter 11 of Matthew, uh, there is the theme of wisdom that runs through the through that chapter. It's a, in the middle of the chapter. There's this statement about uh, wisdom is justified over children and so on. Then there's the comment about um, Uh, repentance uh, and see by implication uh, the Jewish people are not very wise because if um, if uh, Sodom and Gomorrah had seen these works they would have repented and so on and then Jesus speaks about nobody knows the Son but the Father and no one knows the Father but the Son and those to whom the Son should reveal Him that's revelation, that's teaching, that is wisdom and then you have the statement about Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, so on. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you because it is easy and uh, and I am meek and so on. Um, That language is very interesting because in the book of Ecclesiasticus or Sirach, um, which, like the book of Proverbs, sometimes represents wisdom as a woman, a woman who is calling people to herself, and when you get to the very end of the book that that kind of style shows up again and uh, you hear this kind of uh, language draw near to me you who are untaught and lodge in my school why do you say you are lacking in these things and why are your souls very thirsty I opened my mouth and I said get these things for yourselves without money put your neck under the yoke and let your souls receive instruction it is to be found close by now see the yoke of course for, for this writer is the law uh, Jesus uh, says to people come to me see no one knows the father but the son you want wisdom here's the wisdom that was with God in the beginning it's not some impersonal thing it was me Uh, no one knows the father but the son and those to whom the son should reveal so come to me if you're heavy laden I will give you rest and take my yoke because my yoke is not like the yoke of the law but it is easy and you will find rest for your souls what I'm saying is that we know that this book was very popular among the Jews and I can hardly imagine that Jesus when he said these words that the people around him would not have automatically thought of, of these words but by the same token uh, you can see in the book of Ecclesiasticus some of the problems that, that we saw in the prayer of Manasseh this is especially evident for example in chapter 3 where you have staten- statements like this one whoever honors his father atones for sins whoever glorifies his mother is like one who lays up treasure and later on at the very end of chapter 3 uh, water extinguishes a blazing fire so so almsgiving atones for sin now there are not many passages like that but, but you begin to see how there is a sense there is not a full sense <laughs> of uh, of god's absolute mercy in the light of our total inability there seems to be a conception that we somehow participate in our own salvation that what i do whether it be honoring my father or uh, uh, giving alms to the poor that contributes you see to the covering of my sin and without you know poo-pooing the whole book or saying that it's a bad book or anything like that I think we need to recognize that there is that, um, at least the beginnings of a lack of sense of what real mercy and forgiveness are all about. Okay, we'll continue with this tomorrow.